Welcome back to another thrilling episode of Digging Up the Past, the show that you tune into either to learn something new or to put you to sleep. It has been a couple of weeks since our last episode, and you know, it is those holidays just getting in the way. As always, I am your host, Petros Katupis, and today we will be discussing the Minoans. I've already mentioned them in brief in past episodes, but today we will spend more time on the topic. So who were the ancient Minoans and what happened to the Minoan civilization? We will also spend some time on the impact of the Theron eruption to the Minoan philosocracy and how that same eruption would later inspire Plato's Atlantis. Oh, Atlantis, it would become the stuff of legend. We have heard all the stories in one form or another. It is in our movies, television shows, books, video games. Atlantis is everywhere. It is amazing what Plato's references in both his Timaeus and Critias have evolved to, mostly because of later science fiction writers, which include Ignatius Donnelly, to even more recent authors whom I will not mention by name here. It was Ignatius Donnelly, though, who describes the Atlanteans as a technologically advanced peoples, not Plato. Anyway, let us get back on track here. The first and last time we read descriptions of Atlantis as an original source within the ancient literature is from Plato. I need to emphasize this here, as an original source. No one else, just Plato. All other ancient writers either reference Plato or just provide commentary to his writings, as in if Plato made it up or not. We will get to Plato's narrative in a moment, though. The famous Aristotle, yes, the teacher to Alexander the Great, believed the story was entirely made up. And while we do not have his original text, Cranter, who is a student of one of Plato's students, claims to have visited Egypt, conversed with the Egyptian priests, and saw the hieroglyphs confirming the story. Another claim is that Cranter just heard about them from other visitors to Egypt. Again, we do not have the original text, and his works only survive via the citations of other and later ancient writers such as Proclus. It needs to be noted, though, that the commentary of Proclus dates to almost 800 years after Cranter. There is a lot of room for error here. Other ancient writers, which include Strabo and Posidonis, place the Pillars of Heracles a key marker to identifying the location of Atlantis at the southernmost parts of uh, the Greek Peloponnese instead of at the Straits of Gibraltar. That is at the bottom of the Greek mainland, the Gulf of Laconia to be exact. This is what is believed to have been the pillars prior to the 6th century BCE and would definitely place the island within the Mediterranean and close to the Aegean. Remember, Plato lived during the 5th century BCE. This detail matters. And while I am mentioning him for the first time now, Solon, the Athenian statesman and lawmaker who supposedly laid the foundations to democracy in Athens, lived between uh, the 7th and 6th centuries BCE. The story of Atlantis was initially told to Solon by an Egyptian priest at the Temple of Neith during his visit to the northern Egyptian region and the city of Sais. At some point, this tale made its way down to Plato through Critias. 
I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let us revisit Plato and his writings. In his Timaeus, starting at section 24E to be exact, and ending at section 25D, Plato is referencing a conversation held between Solon and an Egyptian priest recalling a story addressing the Athenian state. For it is related in our records how once upon a time your state stayed the course of a mighty host, which starting from a distant point in the Atlantic Ocean was insolently advancing to attack the whole of Europe and Asia to boot. For the ocean there was at that time navigable, for in front of the mouth which you Greeks call, as you say, the pillars of Heracles, there lay an island which was larger than Libya and Asia together. And it was possible for the travelers of that time to cross from it to the other islands, and from the islands to the whole of the continent over against them which encompasses that veritable ocean. For all that we have here lying within the mouth of which we speak is inevitably a haven having a narrow entrance, but that yonder is a real ocean, and the land surrounding it may most rightly be called, in the fullest and truest sense, a continent. Now in the island of Atlantis there existed a confederation of kings of great and marvelous power, which held sway over all the island and over many other islands also in parts of the continent. And moreover, of the lands here within the straits, they ruled over Libya as far as Egypt, and over Europe as far as Tuscany. So this host, being all gathered together, made an attempt one time to enslave, by one single onslaught, both your country and ours, and the whole of the territory within the straits. And then it was, Solon, that the manhood of your state showed itself conspicuous for valor and might in the sight of all the world. For it stood preeminent above all in gallantry and all warlike arts, and acting partly as leader of the Greeks, and partly standing alone by itself, one deserted by all the others. After encountering the deadliest perils, it defeated the invaders and reared a trophy, whereby it saved from slavery such as were not as yet enslaved. And all the rest of us who dwell within the bounds of Heracles, it ungrudgingly set free. But at a later time, there occurred portentous earthquakes and floods, and one grievous day and night befell, when the whole body of the, your warriors was swallowed up by the earth, and the island of Atlantis in like manner was swallowed up by the sea and vanished. Wherefore also the ocean at that spot has now become impassable and unsearchable, being blocked up by the shoal mud which the island created as it settled down. This nation of Atlantis controlled the Mediterranean, the Greeks, their islands, and even the Italian regions. Clearly, they were in contact with the Egyptians because how else would the Egyptians know of their existence and details? The size of the island seems quite a bit exaggerated because anything that large that existed in the outer sea, that is the Atlantic Ocean, we would certainly have found something by now. Think about it. Libya and Asia together. Yes, Asia was not as large to the Greeks as we know it today. Uh, their view of the world was a bit more limited than ours. Europe, western portions of Asia, at least up to Babylon, and northern parts of Africa, at least. Earthquakes and floods, and then the island was swallowed by the sea. Now, when we refer to his second writing and mention of Atlantis, we get a lot more details. Starting in at section 108E of his Critias, Plato states, 
Now, first of all, we must recall the facts that 9,000 is the sum of years since the war occurred, as is recorded between the dwellers beyond the pillars of Heracles and all that dwelled within them, which war we have now to relate in detail. It was stated that this city of ours was in command of the one side and fought through the whole of the war, and in command of the other side were the kings of the island of Atlantis, which we said was an island larger than Libya and Asia once upon a time but now lies sunk by earthquakes and has created a barrier of impassable mud which prevents those who are sailing out from here to the ocean beyond from proceeding further. We will skip a little bit and continue at 110b. And for evidence of what I say, I point to the statement of Solon, that the Egyptian priests in describing the war of the period mention most of those names such as those of Kikrops, Erechtheus, Erechthonius, and Erisichthon, and most of the other names which are recorded of the various heroes before Theseus, and in like manner also the names of the women. The various heroes before Theseus. Such a comment makes me place this time frame to the Bronze Age, and not the exaggerated 9,000 years at the start of this summary. I will skip a little bit more uh, irrelevant material, which describes how self-sustaining the inhabitants were. There is a short king's list in section 114. There is a mention of elephants on the island in 114E. I want to revisit that detail later on in this program. Section 115C is where things really start to get interesting. First of all, they bridged over the circles of the sea which surrounded the ancient metropolis, making thereby a road towards and from the royal palace. And they had built the palace at the very beginning where the settlement was first made by their god and their ancestors. And as each king received it from his predecessor, he added to its adornment and did all he could to surpass the king before him, until finally they made of it an abode amazing to behold for the magnitude and beauty of its workmanship. For beginning at the sea, they bored a channel right through to the outermost circle, which was three plethora in breadth, 100 feet in depth, and 50 stades in length. And thus they made an entrance to it from the sea, like that to a harbor by opening out a mouth large enough for the greatest ships to sail through. Moreover, through the circles of the land, which divided those of sea over against the bridges, they opened out a channel leading from circle to circle, large enough to give passage to a single trireme, and this they roofed over above so that the seaway was subterranean. For the lips of the land circles were raised as a sufficient height above the level of the sea. The greatest of the circles into which boring was made for the sea was three stades in breadth, and the circle of land next to it was equal of breadth. And the second pair of circles, that of water, was two studies in breadth, and that of dry land equal again to the preceding one of water. And the circle which ran around the central island itself was a studies breadth. And this island, wherein stood the royal palace, was a five studies in diameter. Okay, so there existed a center island surrounded by a circle of sea, and then a circle of land, followed by sea, and it sounds like this may have repeated. This is a very important detail, one that we will be able to find today. Again, more on that shortly. According to Plato, or I should say Critias, the Atlanteans were a godly people. In the story, theirs is Poseidon, but they sound to be extremely spiritual. In sections 119e and 120a, it speaks of the sacrificing of bulls to the gods, another important detail. 
The Critias that we read today does not really contain an ending, but begins to highlight the downfall of the Atlanteans. It shows that they were becoming very self-absorbed and forgot their place in the universe. It was your typical story, pride. Their focus on material wealth and moving away from the gods, well, angered the supreme god Zeus. And as Zeus assembles the entire Olympian pantheon to decide the fate of the Atlanteans, the story abruptly ends. So there we have it. I tried to summarize Plato's description as best as I could. But shifting gears, can we correlate any of this with real history? I say, yes, we can. If there was a singular event that could have inspired so many stories and legends in and around the Mediterranean, it would have been the Theron eruption. But before we dive into this cataclysmic ancient event, we need to first understand the ancient Aegean and Eastern Mediterranean during this time period. And this is where the Minoans come into the picture. Let's go back in time now to the mid-16th century BCE. This is the Bronze Age, a little over a thousand years before Plato. This was the height of the Minoan Empire. Their control and influence dominated the entire Aegean in parts of mainland Greece and Anatolia, uh, that is modern-day Turkey. They managed this empire from the palace of Knossos on the island of Crete. Knossos is often referred to as Europe's oldest city. The site was originally excavated by English archaeologist Sir Arthur Evans in the year 1900. The very site and palace of Knossos and the many images of bulls and bull horns found within inspired the myths of the Minotaur and the Labyrinth. If the reader recalls Plato moments ago in how the Atlanteans sacrificed bulls to Poseidon, uh, there may be some connection there. Bull imagery defined the Minoans, enough so that they actually invented an entire sport around it which we call bull leaping today. Yes, the athlete literally leapt or flipped over a charging bull. Yikes. I know this will sound like blasphemy to modern Greeks, but the Minoans were not Greek. They did not speak a Greek language, and DNA analysis has shown that they likely migrated to the Aegean Islands from mainland Anatolia about 10,000 and some years ago. Even to this day, we know very little of the Minoans. We have yet to decipher their language, but clues from the little we have been able to translate of their Linear A script, the language they would have spoken is of an Indo-European dialect and in some ways relates to other Indo-European languages such as Hittite and Luvian. From 2700 to 1450 BCE, the Minoans flourished in the Eastern Mediterranean. That is until the time when the Mycenaean Greeks, who spoke the oldest documented Greek language, came from the Peloponnesian mainland and essentially took over the Minoans and the Minoan Empire when the Minoan Thalassocracy was at its weakest, most likely a result of the eruption of the volcano at Thera. Anyway, the Minoans were well-renowned for their beautiful crafts, paintings, exports such as wines and oils, and more. Such things were imported by the ancient Egyptians, Babylonians, over in Mesopotamia, and throughout the Levant, which is modern-day Israel. In fact, we even find commissioned Minoan-style paintings in Egypt during the Hyksos period, I believe, and Levantine archaeological sites today. 
I already mentioned linear A writing, but I need to emphasize that the Minoans were the very first European civilization to make use of writing. This style of writing would later be adopted by the Mycenaean Greeks. We refer to the Greek version as Linear B. Both of these names, that is Linear A and Linear B, were coined by the same Sir Arthur Evans that excavated Knossos at Crete. Oh, and one last point that I need to make, and that is that the Minoans were way ahead of their time, technologically speaking. 3,600 years ago, the Minoans had the ability to build earthquake-proof multi-story buildings. They had indoor plumbing, which included toilets and even drainage pipes leading waste out of the city and water into the city. But this detail is irrelevant to Plato's telling of Atlantis. Remember, it would be later and more recent authors that claim that the Atlanteans were technologically advanced. I just like mentioning these details, such as the indoor toilets and the plumbing, you know, that dates to 3,600 years ago, because it's a pretty awesome fact. While Crete is the most well-known Minoan civilized island, the second most well-known is Thera, also referred to as Santorini, but the modern Greeks are attempting to revive its original Greek name and not the later Italian name. And even though it is a tiny island, it contains the most well-preserved of Minoan civilizations only because it was buried under volcanic pumice and ash. And even after many decades since its discovery, we are still digging the city we currently refer to as Akrotiri out. Thera is the southernmost island in the Cyclades, to the east of the Peloponnese and north of Crete. It was the home of a thriving Minoan colony. The Minoans on both this island and everywhere else in the Aegean were referred to as the people of Kefchu by the ancient Egyptians. So we have an idea of what the Minoans may have referred to themselves by, which reminds me that I never mentioned why we call them the Minoans. Well, it is the name given to them by Sir Arthur Evans and named after the legendary King Minos of ancient Greek mythology. But again, they probably identified themselves as a variation of the name Kefchu. Going back to the island of Thera, Mycenaean Greek Linear B texts refer to the island as Kera, which is remarkably similar to the name Thera and is believed to be the reason why the name Thera continues to persist. In later Greek, the Kera would eventually evolve to Thera. So the site of Akrotiri is located on the stretch of land at the south of the island. In the center of the island and surrounded by sea is an active volcano. At about 1550 BCE, the volcano in the center of the island erupted. This eruption was huge, and it was unlike any other volcanic eruption known to the ancient world. The cloud of smoke from this eruption itself could be seen for hundreds, if not thousands, of miles. It is even recorded by the ancient Egyptians during the uh, New Kingdom period, and Egypt is not that close to Thera. I mean, it's all the way on the other side of the Mediterranean. Well, on the other side to the south. So before this eruption, the city of Ekrateri was a thriving one. And we know this because of a few things. One, it was frozen in time after the volcano erupted and buried it under ash. That is, no continued settlement above it. We see things as how they were the day of the final explosion. Buildings, 
personal items such as beds and chairs, large storage vessels with grains still in them. Two, also because of the buildings being so well preserved, we still see the everyday life captured in the beautiful paintings or frescoes still decorating the interior walls. One of the most important being the flotilla fresco or the ship fresco. It is found in the southwest wall of room five of the West House. I will come back to this fresco in a moment. The site of Akrotiri and its discovery is a more recent one. And by recent, I mean 1967. It was discovered by the late Greek archaeologist Spiridon Marinatos. As I hinted earlier, excavations of the site still continue today. Now, back to the flotilla fresco. What makes this fresco extremely interesting is that it depicts a map. Well, sort of. We see a depiction of the island all the way to the left, the sea and the ships and dolphins in the middle, and what some believe to be Crete to the right. Well, possibly Crete. And if we were to focus closer on the flotilla fresco and more specifically the depictions of Thera that is on the left, what may be hard to notice at first is that this is a depiction of the entire island. You have the circular perimeter of the land with a body of water inside and another piece of land inside the body of water. Hmm, wait a minute. The volcano's at the center. How can the city of Akrotiri be in the center? Well, it isn't. We see two towns or cities depicted here, or at least two sections of a much larger city. The site of today's Akrotiri appears to be all the way to the left and outside of the ring of water on that ring of land. You have one individual sitting on the one end of the ring of water, which is facing a standing individual on the other side of the ring of water. The part on the left of the ring of water is the area currently being excavated by archaeologists, that is, Akrotiri. As for the city in the middle, well, that may have and most likely existed on what may have been a larger mass of land located at the center of Thera and inside the ring of water, that is, until the volcano and most likely the earthquakes that accompanied it buried it all underwater and under earth, lava, and ash. This fresco is essentially a map of the island prior to the Theron eruption and is very reminiscent of the Atlantis myth in which Plato states how the Egyptian priest of Sais described to Solon that Atlantis was an island surrounded by rings of water and more land. However, it needs to be stressed that the island today is unlike the island of 3,600 years ago. Before the eruption, the land on the outside circle is believed to have been more closed up, creating a more ring-like body of water inside. And the island in the middle, where the volcano exists today, was once a larger piece of land that could have hosted a much larger town or city. And Akrotiri was outside of it in the outer circle. Like many volcanic eruptions, the one at Thera would not have been instantaneous. We do know that eventually it would result in an explosion unlike any other. But before that, it would have been a slow and gradual process consisting of maybe minor earthquakes and micro eruptions. This could have been going on for just long enough to give the island's inhabitants enough time to evacuate. It is worth noting that to date, we have yet to discover the bodies of any victims of this eruption, unlike what occurred at Pompeii in Italy some 1600 years later. But what do the experts say? 
in 2014 here in uh, Chicago. I was out to dinner with the now retired professor and department head of the classics department in the University of Illinois at Chicago, Nano Marinatos. If you have been paying attention, that last name may sound familiar. She is the daughter of the same Spiridon Marinatos who discovered Akrotiri. Anyway, I asked her, where are the bodies? To which she replied, the Theron people may not have ever left the island. Even if the eruption took place in stages, it is hard to imagine how they got organized. Surely some were left behind. Someday we will find the bodies. I'm sure of it. And maybe one day we will find those bodies of Plato's Atlanteans, but it may just be a fraction of the island's total inhabitants just before the eruption. Now, let us turn our attention back to Plato's Atlantis and focus on the specific details of the island and its people. One, the geography. Aside from the exaggerated size in both the Timaeus and Critias, the location of the island was placed beyond the Pillars of Hercules, which could have been at a different location when the story was initially told to Solon. Also, the description of the rings of land separated by water does seem to fit that of the island of Thera. 2. Athens vs. Atlanteans This is nothing more than a description of the Mycenaeans and their struggle with the Minoans and Minoan control of the Mediterranean. Also worth noting is that the site of ancient Mycenae is really not that far from Athens. Remember, after the Theron eruption on the island of Santorini, the Minoan control of the region weakened just enough for the Mycenaean Greeks to take over. 3. Much like the Atlanteans, the Minoans were masters of the sea. 4. Also, much like the Atlanteans, the Minoans were an extremely spiritual people. This is evident by all the imagery, including the etched iconography on oh so many rings discovered. Oh yeah, elephants. While I do not believe that there is a connection with the Minoans and elephants, I am only mentioning it as a neat fact. At the end of the last ice age, around 11,000 years ago, Elephants roamed the Mediterranean. Sea levels were much lower, and we find fossil remains of dwarf elephants throughout the Aegean and everywhere else, which includes both Crete and the Cyclades. By the time of the Minoans, I am certain that these elephants did not walk the land anymore. But many, including myself, believe that their skulls inspired the later stories of the Cyclops. By the time Plato told his story, and even the time of Solon before him, the Mediterranean was pretty well navigated and very well known. The island of Atlantis needed to be pushed away to uncharted territories. So beyond the Straits of Gibraltar it went. And let us not forget how information becomes corrupt with each telling. I have highlighted this in past episodes while talking about the Trojan War and the mythical founder of Rome, Romulus. And we have come to an end with another great episode. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Substack newsletter where you will get a lot more awesome historical content. Also, let me know your thoughts and whether you'd like to see more community-driven discourse via the new Substack threads feature accessible from the Substack Reader mobile application. Got something to say? Or do you have ideas for topics to cover in future episodes? Then be sure to share those comments at diggingupthepast.net or simply email me at petros at petroscatupis.com. Who knows? It may even be featured in an upcoming newsletter, video, or podcast episode. This is Petros Katupis, signing off.